The theme I'd like to reflect on this evening is what it means to be living in rental accommodation, which might sound like a curious topic for a Dharma talk, but uh, essentially this is how I frame the, the significance of the teaching of impermanence. And this talk is about anicca, as the Buddha said, change, impermanence, and what that means for us. It is perhaps the fundamental topic that we encounter, that we are invited to address when we engage in Dharma practice. This aspect of our experience or the truth of what we encounter in life, where we recognize and see that things change. They do not stay the same as they were. And how they are is not how they will be. The Buddha referred to this as the elephant's footprint. Again, a kind of curious metaphor. And in that, what he meant was that the, or the way he used it was to say that the elephant's footprint is the footprint that encompasses all other footprints. And in the same way, the truth of impermanence, of change, of anicca, encompasses all things in the world. All that arises is subject to passing. The truth of change dominates the world of things, the world of that which we encounter. And this human existence, this rather sometimes delightful and other times troubling and certainly at times perplexing condition that we call being alive. This is like living in rental accommodation. Borrowed accommodation, we could say. About, I think it was now, must be 15 years ago, I had the good fortune to spend a couple of years living here at the Insight Meditation Society with my wife Catherine and uh, I was working here at the time. And when we returned to England after our time here was uh, completed, we were very fortunate in that we were offered a place to stay, having very little resources and um, means to sort of provide our own accommodation. We were very happy to be invited to stay in a wing of a very large mansion and just give some support to the elderly gentleman who lived there who was a sort of a Dharma supporter. And uh, it was a very lovely arrangement. It worked very well for us. We were invited to stay in this place, uh, a Sharpham house on the estate where there had been a Buddhist community for many years. And subsequently, there was a Buddhist college there. And after about, I think it was just about over a year, having, as I said, been very kindly invited to stay and live in this place, and we weren't paying rent, we were just there, we were just as graciously and kindly invited to leave. And we found ourselves somewhere to stay temporarily and move through two or three different places. And then some good friends of it. Well, actually, we knew them reasonably well. We weren't that close, but we, we knew them reasonably well. Some friends of ours um, who were buying a home and had, were in fortunate circumstances able to buy a large enough home for four people to live in and wanted to share. So they invited us to come and live with them. And we were very happy. It was a lovely arrangement. It worked. It seemed pretty well. And... 
about a year and a half after we moved in with them, you can see, they sat down and we had a conversation and then they said, well, we think it would be good if you moved out. Now, we were practicing with this and not wanting to take it personally at all. Um, and of course, circumstances change in that way. But for me, it was a really powerful sort of lesson and learning in the sense of how we, we kind of get invited into situations. We don't choose them necessarily. And then at some point, they come to an end. For me, the reflection that came out of it was very much the sense of how this, this body and this thinking mind as a temporary phenomena that we somehow arrive in as if we've been invited. We certainly didn't organize it or make it happen. It just seems we've turned up here in some way or form. And this body and mind is, is temporary. It's like we could say we have a unpredictable landlord. We don't know when at some point, having been invited in, we're going to be hopefully, graciously, but it's not guaranteed, invited out. And this particular sort of rental accommodation will no longer be available to us. This reflection is something that the Buddha invited and encouraged us to undertake, to engage with, to bring into our heart and our mind again and again. To, to understand that all that is mine beloved, pleasing and dear to me, that I will be parted from. All that is mine, beloved, dear and pleasing to me, that I will be parted from. At some point, not necessarily too quickly, but eventually this body and all the other bodies that we might be fond of or care for the beings that we have contact with, the situations and circumstances that we appreciate, that we value, that we love. They are not forever. And in that acknowledgement of parting and in the experience of those partings, those separations, those endings, there may be at time some appropriate sadness, sorrow or even grief that arises. That's not inappropriate. And yet, do we really understand what this is saying to us, what this truth means for our life? Often we don't really take it on. We don't really engage with it, except when it's happening to us, when something that we did care for, that we do love, that is precious to us, is slipping through our fingers or is gone. And at that point, we suddenly come face to face with the the potent reality of impermanence, of change. And when it's not appearing to be happening to us, we somehow seem to forget that it's going on all the time. And yet, the confrontation with or the engagement with this question was very much at the heart of the Buddha's entering into his search, his journey, his seeking and the beginning, we could say, of the transformation that he discovered and realized through that journey. The Buddha, having recognized the truth of impermanence through encountering the fact that all human beings having bodies are subject to sickness, to aging, to death, that all of us encounter this, he, he asked himself, 
having led up until that time quite a privileged and comfortable life, he said, why should I, who is subject to aging, sickness and death, to impermanence essentially, spend my life chasing after other things which are also subject to impermanence, to sickness, aging and death? Would it not make sense that being myself subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, I sought for that which was not subject to those conditions. And I'm paraphrasing the, the words that he used there. <laughs> so this is a question really to ask ourselves. Now, what are we really dedicating our lives to? Because insofar as it's that we're dedicating our lives to the accumulation of things which are ultimately going to slip through our fingers, then there's a, there's a way in which we're not really going to find the peace and the, the depth of, of satisfaction, of transformation, of happiness that we're looking for. We're going to be disappointed again and again. And it's interesting how, when we reflect on this, we see that change is all around. It's not something that's surprising to any... I mean, it's not like I'm saying anything to you that any of us didn't know. We all know this. We could ask a five-year-old school child, do things always stay the same? Do things last forever? Highly likely that they would know and say, no, they change. Things don't last forever. So it's not like it's some kind of complex thing that we don't get because it's too difficult to understand or too far from our own experience. And yet, do we live in accordance with this truth? Do we really live our life as if we knew that that was so, that things change, that all things that we could take to bring towards us will at some time move away from us? I remember having a rather, what for me was interesting, um, kind of encounter with the strength of the, the way in we think in terms of permanence. And it was some years ago, um, just prior to teaching a retreat uh, such as this at um, Gaia House, the Central England, where Christina and I are quite uh, involved and teach regularly. And I think it might have actually been a retreat with Christina. I can't remember. But anyway, it was in June. And we'd been having this glorious, hot, sunny weather for... Oh, at least a week or 10 days, which is pretty rare in England, I have to say. Um, and when I was getting my clothes together to go to the retreat center to, to spend a week there, I remember thinking, gosh, I don't really have enough sort of tidy clothes to wear for a whole week teaching if, when it's going to be so hot and sticky and, you know, I need some more shirts and I don't have enough that are really lightweight, I'm going to be too hot. And I was really fretting and worried about it as I packed my bag, put all the things in that I could find, and went over to the retreat. And about a day later, it probably wasn't much more than 24, maybe 36 hours, of course the weather changed. And it got cold, it got wet, it started raining, heavier than this, and it got really quite chill. And first of all, I, I sort of was thinking, gosh, I was really worried about the fact that I didn't have enough clothes for this hot weather that I was assuming was going to continue. 
And even more shocking to me was the fact when I went back and looked in my bag, I thought, I didn't bring a sweater. <laughs> How? How could I not bring a sweater? I was assuming it was going to be really hot for at least a week more. And this is, you know, I spend how much time in my life telling people about change? <laughs> so there was that sense of just kind of embarrassment and just a, a, the humility of saying, yeah, I completely took myself in there. I completely believed that this condition was going to continue. And how many times do we do that in a day? And how many obvious situations do we assume that this condition, this circumstance is going to go on the way that it has been. So this misperception is something we need to attend to. To see, when we see that which is impermanent as being permanent, this the Buddha pointed to as a source of immense suffering. When we see and relate to that which is impermanent as though it was permanent, we suffer. We suffer. And we can see how we do it all the time. We're sitting in meditation. And you know, it's been a couple of days now, we're starting to settle in, and then suddenly we find that the mind is clear. The body feels at ease. It's like the light dawns, and it's like, ah, yes, I'm here. I've arrived. This is it. <laughs> and within moments of what we'd been desperately longing for to arise, having shown up, we're sitting there thinking, wow, it's happened. And we start to think of maybe I could do a long retreat, you know, maybe three months or six, or maybe I should ordain, shave my head, go become a nun or a monk. And we have this whole spiritual career mapped out in front of us. And then, of course, we realize that we're busy, lost in thought. We're spaced out. We're nowhere near the present moment anymore. And that whole sense that we created was based on the idea that this meditation experience was somehow going to continue in time. And it's already gone. And despite the fact that we've just seen how we projected it in time, imagined its continuity, and got entangled in that, we think, oh no, I've blown it. I had it, it's gone. Here am I, lost in thinking, dwelling, deluded, confused. It's hopeless. I'm going to be like this for the rest of the retreat. I'm, in fact, why bother with the rest of the retreat? I might as well go home. You know, there's no point in this. And within moments, we've projected that experience into the future. And, and we can just do that again and again and again. So what happens if we really look at this? We see that so much of our struggle in life and in meditation as a microcosm of our life, it's similar. It's like we struggle with things that are difficult because at some level we're afraid that they're going to continue forever. Or at least for a long, long, long time. It's like if something difficult is going on, our knee is hurting, our mind is complaining, our heart is feeling tender. In the fact of it arising and we're here, actually it's already evident that it's here and we're here, we can be with this. But what we can't be with is the sense of how long we're going to have to do that for. That sense of projecting into the future makes being with it impossible. And actually, interestingly, it is impossible. We can't be with what is going to happen in the future because it doesn't exist. It's impossible to be with something that doesn't exist. And we disconnect from where we are. Or likewise, 
when something delightful or sweet arises in our experience and the sense of wanting to keep it. It's like, ah, I feel so peaceful. What did I do? How was it that I managed? Was it because I you know, just got here on time instead of rushing in the last minute? Or because I, I decided to sit this way rather than that way? We start trying to figure out what we did as if, if we can figure out all the reasons that it happened, then we can keep it, we can maintain it, we can sustain it. We notice this sort of, this tightening that goes on around it. It's just sort of like we're trying to squeeze it and get hold of the experience. And of course, you know, we squeeze it to death. What we were enjoying was the spaciousness of the moment. And then when we try and take hold of it, it's already gone. But underlying that urge to take hold of it is the assumption that it is of the nature of the thing that we can keep it. That it could become something we get, keep, and sort of put it in our meditation portfolio of what I've got. And next time when I come to my setting, I'll just get it out and hang out there. Of course, it's slightly ridiculous, but also we see our mind do that. This very life that we have, we so easily start to live as if it goes on forever. As if we can assume that we'll be here in a week's time. I do. I'm planning to see my wife. I really am. But there is no guarantee that that will come to pass. And, I mean, beyond a week, of course, months, years, we, we kind of don't question that or very easily forget to question that assumption. There's a story from the Bhagavad Gita, the uh, sort of Indian spiritual classic in which uh, Krishna and or Arjuna, the hero, is riding in his chariot and Krishna, who represents wisdom in the story, is the charioteer. And Arjuna asks Krishna, in, he says, with your vast vision of the, the world, of the cosmos, what is the greatest miracle that you see? And Krishna, sorry, Krishna responds to Arjuna, he says, that although all around them people see others dying, somehow they do not believe it will happen to them. And it's very, very deeply rooted, this sense of continuity, the sense of permanence, the sense of ongoingness that we hold to very deeply, despite the intellectual knowledge that it's not like that, that things change, that this being, this body will come to an end. Intellectually doesn't do it, does it? It doesn't really mean we live that truth. The French philosopher Gaillieu once said, if we know but do not act accordingly, then we know imperfectly. We know imperfect. We don't really fully know impermanence when we live, or so far as we live, without acknowledging what that means for us. So, in the process of meditation practice, one of the primary areas of investigation, of exploration, of developing comprehension clear comprehension, understanding of the way things are, that we also call wisdom, 
is the process of sorry, transforming or correcting the misperceptions. The movement from blindness or ignorance, avidya, the Buddha spoke of, not seeing, to wisdom, seeing things as they are. This is the transformative process of insight. And misperception arises quite simply because we don't examine our experience carefully enough. We tend to just skate over the surface of it, forming surface impressions. And so, how does this happen? How can it be that we can live our life without really seeing what's in front of our face? There's an image or a metaphor that I find quite useful for this to kind of illustrate it. And so you could just imagine the scenario if you're in a car driving on a long straight road and you're looking out the windscreen. You call it the windscreen? The front. You're looking out the front through the windscreen. Um, and what do you see on the horizon or in the far distance? It's whatever it is, it doesn't matter. It might be mountains, it might be buildings, it might be just a flat line. If you're looking straight out at the horizon at where you're going, essentially, it doesn't change much at all. You're driving along, you might be hurtling towards it at 60 miles an hour, but it doesn't really change. Looking out there. Now, if you look out the back window, now, if you're driving, I suggest you don't do this, but as a passenger, you can turn, look out the back window. And if you look out the back window, you're driving on a long straight, what do you see? Again, whatever it's there, it's pretty much the same. It's not changing, although you're departing from it at 60 miles an hour. And now look out the side window directly at the point of the um, side of the road that you're going past. What do you see? It's so, it's moving so quickly, it's blurred, it's flickering. You can't even really see what's there. If you try and look and focus, it's gone before you can see it. And whether it's telegraph poles or road markers or just whatever's on the side of the road, it's going past so far, and you, it, it hurts to try and focus on it. So what has that got to do with us? When our mind tends to dwell in the past or the future, because we're not actually looking at what's real, what's actual, we're, when, we're looking, when we're thinking of, when we're dwelling in the future, we're relating to a construct or an image. When we're dwelling on the past, we're relating to a memory, which is an image or a fragment of the past. It's not actually what happened. If you think your memory is what happened, try getting five people to stand around and watch the same event, and then ask them 10 minutes later what happened. And you'll see that every person has got a different picture. Ask them a week later or a month later, and the picture gets so different, you might think they weren't all in the same place. But we hold a few fragments as what was, and when we're dwelling in the past, it's a fixity, it's a solidity. It doesn't change because we've just got those images. And so it reinforces that sense of things that don't change. When we think about the future, we likewise tend to think in images that we've projected forward based on those that happened in the past. And again, they're images, they're not actuality. The future isn't there. We're not looking at it. We're looking at our idea of what it might be. And again, it's fixed. So when we turn our attention to the present moment, when we turn our attention to the experience that's actually happening right here and now, which is what we're invited to do again and again, what we see is this 
moment-by-moment unfoldment of experience that is constantly moving, constantly changing, constantly flickering from one thing into the next. And we have to actually slow down and make it really simple. It's like we've got to put the brakes on and drive, drive down the road at 10 mile an hour just to be able to see the grass or the pebbles on the side of the road. Any faster than that and they blur. And here we're slowing down, we're simplifying our experience so that we begin to see what's actually happening and get an experiential sense of, a, a more a cellular knowledge of what it means to be living amidst that which is changing constantly. And what happens when we do that? When we look at the things around us and see them changing, we see our experience changes, our world changes, people around us change, what we call or imagine ourselves to be changes. Sights and sounds, smells, taste, touch, thoughts, they all change. Think how many you've had just in one day on retreat. How they're constantly moving, even if they last for a little while. If you really examine them, you'll see that something that was painful in my knee, it was hurting, it seemed to go on for the whole sitting. But if you really look at it, you'll see that actually the pain keeps moving around, changing, sometimes more intense, sometimes less. Sometimes we feel like it's okay, I can be with it. Other times it's just totally impossible. So our relationship to it also, changing and changing. And if we start to really let that in, it can be quite unsettling. There's a way in which it's scary for us to really face up to this. It's unsettling, it's challenging to us. And that's part of why we don't really want to look at it most of the time. We tend to want to gloss over it and say, yeah, I know, things change. I'm just going to keep on doing what I do. Because that unsettledness, that uncertainty can run really deep into our hearts and minds, into our very life when we haven't examined it, when we haven't looked at it carefully. Often the way we deal with that with that sense of uncertainty, that ungraspability, that unpredictability, the way we habitually, unconsciously tend to try and deal with that is to try and avoid that sense of things being fluid, dynamic, changing, in flux. And we avoid it by trying to create security, by trying to fix, solidify, and kind of establish a sense of something that isn't going to change, that we can rely on, that can give us a sense of ah, relief. Here, I can hang out and this thing is going to stay the same. Now, whether that be the way we look at or relate to ourselves and construct the sense of identity that we've spoken a little about and we'll kind of speak more of, through the days, but whether it's to do with that kind of inner construction of the sense of who we take ourselves to be, or whether it's to do with situations in the world, relationships, possessions, experiences. This, it's like there's a, in the attempt to create permanence, what we, we notice is this urge to control, this urge to fix, this 
sense often one of the ways it shows in the sense of things should be a certain way and there's a certain definiteness about that I know it must be this way that feels like it's absolute permanent and an unchanging truth it must be so when we're convinced and those shoulds and certainties are again about creating or attempting to create or grab take hold of for ourselves something we can rely on that's permanent that's fixed that isn't going to change and we invest in experiences and circumstances and possessions and views and relationships in the hope that they will give us security or safety protection from the truth of impermanence but they don't and we see that again and again we take hold of things we hold as tight as we can to them and it doesn't work for us. It doesn't work for us. I mean, it's fine, of course, to cultivate, to nourish, to develop those things that are wholesome and beneficial. Of course, in our practice, that's a large part of what we're doing. And in terms of cultivating the wholesome and the beneficial within our own hearts and minds. And yet, the way we try and somehow fix them, and then we sort of have the thought of, you know, I've got that now. I've, I've got, you know, I've worked out loving kindness, I've got it sorted. Or more commonly, because we, we don't tend to go that way, mostly I tend to hear, either in my own mind or from sort of conversations with others practicing, it's more like I've sorted that stuff now, that's fixed, that particular problem that I get tangled up with, it's, it's done. Then of course there's usually some quite, some disappointment when it shows up again. And in fact, just as a kind of aside to the theme, but whenever we have the thought that says, that's done, I'm finished with that, that's usually a sign that we're not. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint you on that one. When we're finished and done with it, we don't need to have the thought that says, I'm done with it. It's just done. And that sense of, I'm done with it, is trying to kind of fix a position in which we feel safe in relationship to something that we maybe find otherwise difficult. So, Yes, there's a place, and I'm not saying in this that one shouldn't seek to find a, you know, a home, relationship, job, appropriate sort of material possession to support one's well-being and livelihood and all of that. And the Buddha spoke likewise in terms of, you know, living in the world that we need to take care and use skill and um, good judgment with all of that. And yet, the the critical point is really how then do we relate to all those things in our lives? How then do we relate to all those things in our lives? And it's a little bit like children building sandcastles on the beach. You know, when you build sandcastles, you have to do it in the tidal zone, the bit between high tide and low tide. You try and build a, a sandcastle up in the dry sand where the tide never goes, what happens? Nothing, pile of sand. You can't do a thing with it. You can't mold and make it. You, of course, obviously you try and do it where the tide, below the low tide zone, nothing's gonna happen either, you're underwater. So you do it in that bit where the tide goes away. You build something, and then what happens? The tide comes back. And some children, you'll see, when the tide comes in, will be just laughing. Maybe they'll help the tide kick their sandcastle over. And others will be crying, and, oh no, my beautiful castle, don't destroy it. And yet, what can we do? We're like those children. Sometimes we can see, oh yeah, this is inevitable. The very nature of things that can be brought into existence is that they will also pass from existence. Understanding that, we can make use of them, enjoy them, delight in them, and yet understand 
the limitation in them. And what that means is really to live with a sense of the, the fleetingness of life. And while at one level that might be unsettling to us when we resist it, or when we shrink from that fluidity, that unpredictability, that uncontrollability of life, when we shrink away from it, of course, it seems really a problem to us. But when we can relax with it, when we can acknowledge that there's no escaping it, so shrinking away doesn't help, and really begin to open to this truth, it starts to show that there's something something that's, that brings forth from us our very aliveness when we engage with the truth of impermanence. Helen Keller, who was uh, who both blind and deaf and yet lived a remarkable life, she once said, Security is mostly a superstition. It does not occur in nature, and nor do the children of men as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is in the long run no safer than outright exposure. Life is either a glorious adventure or is nothing. Remarkable words. Avoiding danger is in the long run no safer than outright exposure. Life is either a glorious adventure or it is nothing. The, 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 the sense of brightness, the courage and the, the spirit of those words, to me, is, it's remarkable, beautiful. That sense of seeing that there isn't security to be found doesn't mean, oh, woe is me. It's more like, wow, what an adventure. If we meet that with that spirit, then many things become possible. And really, again, this is one of the invitations of the spiritual life, to see what it offers to us, this truth, not just what it takes away from us. Because, in fact, the truth of impermanence is not all bad news by any means. Just for starters, you know, things would be a little bit crowded around here if people didn't move on. <laughs> really? If all the beings that ever walked on the planet were still here, there wouldn't be much room for any of us. And we see that when things move on, they make space for something new. That's the nature of life. One thing in fading or passing away gives rise to the conditions for the support for something new, something fresh. When things are difficult, of course, impermanence sounds like a great idea. <laughs> you know, wow, come on, Anicca, let's, you know, let's get rid of this thing. Of course, it doesn't work that way, but if we can remember in the midst of the struggle or the challenge or the difficulty, if we remember that truth that things do not last forever, there's a way in which the heart can just soften and relax, even while the difficult condition continues for however long as it does. And one of, the, one of the real values in this contemplation is to notice when something comes to an end that it's ended. Not just with, phew, it's ended, but, oh yeah, that's the nature of things. It's ended. 
And if we're working with difficult conditions, bodily conditions or mental conditions and patterns of thinking or emotional processes that are difficult for us or painful to bear, and we all encounter them in different ways and forms, really noticing those times when they stop, when they end, when they just become less intense even, and they're just okay. Really marking that with, ah, it changes. It's not permanent. So we know that well in our hearts. And then at the time when we're in the very midst of it, the tendency of mind to think it's going to be like this forever, I can't cope, has less power. And perhaps we'll remember, ah, it's not forever. And maybe then we can be okay with those challenging things. To really make space in our hearts for what comes requires us to remember the truth of impermanence. Impermanence and change is also the basis of beauty, of things that really we love, that delight and nourish our hearts. I mean, if we go, as there was a couple of days ago, if we're, we're looking out and there's a, there's a sunset and there was a beautiful sort of magenta globe just dropping over the horizon a couple of days ago. I don't know if maybe everyone else was in the sitting at the time and didn't get to see it, but uh, I'll tell you, it was a nice one. Um, maybe you saw, I can't remember when it was, but I, I got to see it anyway. And I'm sure you're familiar with the experience, but you know, watching as the different colors that starting a more an orangey and then deepening into the reds and then purples and then disappearing. And yet imagine you go to watch a sunset and it's like, wow, that's beautiful. Imagine if it just stayed like that. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's good. I like it. Yeah, okay. And probably after about five or ten minutes, it's like, well, what's for supper? <laughs> but because it changes, it captivates us. There's something in that that speaks to us. And not just sunsets, which are perhaps extraordinarily beautiful at times, but many, many things. It's the, the fact that things keep changing that keeps it alive that keeps a sense of freshness. And when we lose touch with that, that's when we get bored. When we imagine that our breath is boring. People do report it regularly. Boring. <laughs> In, out, up, down. You know? And yet if we really feel the sensations and the ripple, each breath is fresh, different, unique. When we come to it with a fresh mind, it's like, oh, wow. Not just is this breath unique in its expression in this moment, but this breath is keeping me alive. This is nourishing my, my very physical existence. And it, it's drawing into it molecules of chemicals that have been released by the leaves and the trees around me, and, which is rather nice, and also by the uh, lungs of the people sitting around me, which sometimes isn't quite so nice. But nonetheless, it's like, wow. In this breath, the whole expression of life is manifesting, the interconnectedness and the changing nature of things. It's, it's right here. You know, we get bored by it. Remarkable how that happens. Life is change. Definition of something alive is that it's changing. Only things that slow down, they don't actually stop changing, they just slow down like rocks. They still change. It's just slower. So we think they're not really alive. It's all relative, really. But um, it's fascinating how it's not just change, but it's almost the imperfectness of things that marks them out as being alive. 
you sometimes go into a restaurant and see those beautiful flowers they put in the middle of tables. Sometimes they even put a little bit of perfume on them. And you go and look at it. And it takes a little while to be sure whether that thing's made of plastic or not. I don't know if they do that here, but they certainly do it in England. And it's kind of like, just a moment, what is it that's not right here? And it's like that it's, it doesn't have any leaves because they're really good at them now, not just plastic fabric and all sorts of, you know, textiles to make it really look like a flower. And yet it's not because there's no curling up dying petal or there's no sort of damaged piece of leaf. It's not dying. And although it looks, if one had the image of it, like it's alive, like a real thing, actually it doesn't touch the heart. It doesn't have that felt sense of, ah, something we recognize as life that shows its beauty, that shows its, its tenderness to us, that we can feel. Because that's all part of what comes with the fact and the truth of change. It's also the basis of everything that we feel to be precious. If things were forever, they would not be precious. Human life is precious because it isn't forever. Relationships are precious because they're not forever. And remembering that really allows us to be in touch with them, to, 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 to feel the sweetness of that preciousness. For, for many years, uh, my wife Catherine and I, whenever we would part, even if just one of us was going to do something for a couple of hours, as a practice, we would, we would just, at the moment when one was leaving, and certainly if one of us was going off somewhere, certainly both of us doing quite a lot of traveling, um, that we would say, you know, I really hope I see you again. Because that was true, I did hope. But just saying it like that was just not to assume that I would. And the sweetness of that, that, the preciousness of just really resting in that for a few moments, really touching, really beautiful. And in this regard, um, I often uh, remember a, uh, a little plaque that's placed under a small tree in a monastery in England that I sometimes visit of the, uh, the, the community of the, uh, the monks of Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Sumedho, who um, sort of Thai forest tradition lineage of mostly uh, Western Buddhist monks and nuns. And at this monastery, Chithurst, or Chithurst Monastery, there's this little plaque and it says, the cherry trees blossom for just a few days. Any longer, and we would not treasure them so. And then under that, it's got a single date, can't remember the date, and then little Sam. And the sense for me of that, which it seems as I understand, maybe it's obvious, but that, that you know, referring to a life that was just one day, and the preciousness of that seen and understood to be in inverse proportion to its length, because it was so brief, the preciousness, the, the degree of treasuring of that life, so, so deep, so deep. So really letting that in, letting that in. To really live with the truth of impermanence is also to live with a tenderness for life. 
tenderness for all that we encounter within ourselves and within our world. And in that, also to find quite organically a sense of, you know, it's sort of like okay that things are this way, the way that they are. Because when we see that we're living in rental accommodation and that we have a really unpredictable landlord, and you know, every day people die who didn't expect to die that day. Every day it happens to many people. When we see that, we relate differently to what this is. And again, to go back to the illustration I used at the beginning of the rental accommodation, in the second scenario where Catherine and I moved in with these two friends into this lovely house on the edge of Dartmoor, this national park, beautiful place, big field with the house, plenty of space, nicer house than I did ever lived in, apart from the mansion of the previous uh, <laughs> incident. Um, what was really interesting is we moved in there and Kat, we, we looked around and thought, oh wow, what a lovely home. Our friends looked around and thought, this is nice, um, let's move that over there. We have one of these here, we'll move that wall, get a new door, shift the kitchen, the bathroom. That whole sense of when you own it, when you think it's yours and you've got it forever, the relationship to it easily becomes, let's improve it, let's fix it. Let's make more of it than it is. Rather than our relationship was, well, we know we're not here forever. We thought it would be longer than 18 months, but we knew it wouldn't be forever. And so it was like, well, we're not going to get involved with trying to make this thing perfect. We're just going to enjoy it the way it is. A very similar thing happens when we look at how we relate to ourselves, or what we call ourselves, the structure and the manifestation of our personality, our body, our heart, our mind that there's a really wholesome and important way in which we can engage in a cultivation, in a development of the wholesome, of the lovely, of the beautiful, of the uplifting qualities, of wisdom, of compassion, of patience, of generosity, of loving kindness, of course, crucial parts of our journey. And yet often we kind of, we can come into spiritual practice or in our life with a sense of trying to fix, trying to improve that's based on an idea of ownership and permanence that would be very different if we looked at what we experience ourselves to be as something that's not forever. would much more easily, I think, find a way of just, okay, it's not perfect, it's not permanent, but it's not forever. So it's okay. It's just how it is. And see what's possible with this. The body, the mind state, the life, the thoughts we have, if we see them as borrowed, on loan, just for a while, then it's really a much more relaxed relationship to them all. And in truth, this is really much more in accord with how the actuality of our life is. It's offered and received, it's borrowed and will be returned. And just really feeling that, really sensing that, letting our heart vibrate to the, to the resonance of this truth, this transience, this sort of way in which it just is, life is slipping through our fingers. 
so far as we try to grasp it, it's slipping through. And there's a stanza from the, uh, the Diamond Sutra, which is a, one of the teachings of the, the Mahayana, the later northern tradition of Buddhism, which uh, speaks to this very beautifully. And it goes, Thus you should look upon this fleeting world, a drop of dew, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And that cascade of images of momentary experiences, for me, it kind of, it really evokes the, the evanescence, the sort of the, the vapor-like nature of what it means to be alive. A drop of dew, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom and a dream. Just it's all gone. All of that, and it's all gone. To really feel this is to allow our life to be informed, to inform our relationship to all things, to all experiences, to live with wisdom. And what it really means, what it comes down to in the end, is to let go, to let be. To let go of that which we grasp at, to let be that which we find challenging or difficult. That doesn't mean we can't really contact, touch and be touched by life. But in fact, that's the way in which we touch and are touched by life. To not take hold of experience because it's changing. To not resist it because it's passing away. William Blake wrote of this in the poem. He said, He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. Beautiful expression there of this teaching. That when we try to bind that which gives us joy or brings delight to us, when we try and bind ourselves to it, take hold of it essentially, the winged life, the lightness, the fluidity, the, the flowingness of life is destroyed. Binding ourselves to the joy, we lose that. But when we can kiss the joy as it flies, and so again, it's like making intimate contact with what is there that may be lovely or beautiful. It's not shying back from it, saying, oh, I don't want to get attached, but to kiss, uh, that expression of intimacy. Very beautiful. As it flies, understanding it's in motion. It's not trying to bite it as it flies and get hold of it, you know. <laughs> Try that with someone you're quite attracted to. It doesn't work. It's like, yeah, just that contact. To live on in eternity's sunrise. What does that mean? When we can learn to live in that spirit, it's like the dawn of the timeless, eternity's sunrise. When we really live from the understanding of change, the understanding, the realization of the timeless is, is not far from us. She who binds herself to a joy does the winged life destroy. She who kisses the joy as it flies 
lives on in eternity's sunrise. And so learning to be at home in this changing world, learning to rest in the way things are, is to learn to not attach, to not dwell, to not take hold of. And so far and to the degree that we learn this lesson well, the lesson of impermanence, the lesson of letting go, to this degree our practice liberates us. As Ajahn Chah said, let go a little and you'll know a little peace. Let go a lot and you'll know a lot of peace. Let go completely. You will know complete peace and freedom. This is the invitation of our practice. Let's sit quietly for a moment or two. So may we all in our practice and in our lives see clearly the truth of impermanence. May we learn to let go. And may we live with peace and in freedom for our own welfare, for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.